to FinTech Family Hour. This is Zach Anderson Pettit, content director at Money 2020 by day and your host by night. This week, we're welcoming a guest that I have wanted to have on this show since the first time someone confused us on Twitter. I think that was about six years ago. That's right, folks. Our guest this week is Zach Pore, CEO at Plaid. It's the Zach Attack, folks. If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe, rate, and review Fintech Family Hour wherever you listen to your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by FS Vector, the firm for innovative financial services. And without further ado, here's Zach. Zach, welcome, my friend. How are you feeling? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you here, man. This is uh, a long time coming, personally. I think I have wanted to do this interview for four years, maybe five, maybe six. So it's good to good to have you here. Not anything that you need to live up to, you know, no pressure. <laughs> no pressure at all. Well, yeah. thank, thank you for having me. Um, I'm excited to do it. Uh, I don't know how we're going to solve the Zach interviewing Zach, Pettit, Perret. Like there's a lot of confusion on on namespace here. Well, and we take it a step further. Your middle initial, I believe, is an A. It is. But I actually have a trick. My first name is George. So I have whoa, four names. Whoa, 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 whoa. What just, what? Your middle, <laughs> how do we get from George to Zach? Uh, my, my parents always planned to call me Zach. Just my, my, my first name was George. I was named after my grandfather. Fascinating. Where did the, did the Zach come from just your mom's desire or like, just like, where did Zach, you, you, did we stop there? That's as I don't know. far you as, ask her. okay. She'll be, she'll be the next guest. There we go. Freya, can you work that out for me? Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> What is the A stand for? Alexander. Okay. Why do you never do the zap? Because it's one of my favorite parts of life is to be able to sign off an email with zap. Um, because you do it. I mean, I have to leave you. Some, oh yeah, some right, right. Because you totally like, know what I'm signing off my emails as. Yeah, go. right. Because we're that close. Totally. <laughs> Where are you from? Give me like the the Zach background. Uh, I grew up in Central North Carolina, um, small town, kind of outside of a slightly larger town. So the town I grew up in was called Clemens. It was, I think, when I grew up, it was probably a five thousand person town, something like that. And rural, interesting uh, lifestyle. Spent a lot of time riding bikes and uh, doing things outdoors as a kid. It's a nice, idyllic place to grow up. With five thousand people, like how much of a worldview do you think? Like, do you think you had, or when did you feel like you kind of developed the broader worldview that led you to being a fascinating, wild, like multi-continent human that you are today? Uh, well, that's that's kind of you to say. Um, I think there are probably two big things. First is um, my parents are musicians. Um, so my dad's a... Symphony. And damn good ones, right? Like this isn't not just like they're, you know, down the street at a little bodega in the back, but like serious, right? Yeah, my dad was a symphony conductor. So he he traveled a lot for for conducting and um, certainly brought uh, a lot of that back. Um, so that, that that certainly was one area is having a, a broader viewpoint from my, uh, my dad. Um, the second was the internet. Uh, so as a kid, um, you know, I was lucky to have a computer in the house, a uh, shared computer amongst the whole family, but um, still I could uh, spend a lot of time, especially evenings, I would sometimes wake up and sneak out and go use the internet to to, to learn about things or read about things. What kind of computer um, was it? Oh my gosh. Uh, we had a bunch. I, I think when I was in high school, I started building them. Um, so uh, eventually it was like, you know, one that I had constructed, I think for most of high school, but in middle school, I don't know. 
I don't remember. What, That's fair. Maybe That's some fair. sort of gateway. But you were clearly fascinated by the hardware aspect of it, not just the software aspect of it. Sounds like. Yeah, I always liked building things, but yeah. I, I think the just you know spending a lot of time uh, on the internet, spending a lot of time on IRC, <laughs> uh, you know, learning things, reading Wikipedia back when it was first getting started was um, is a good way to broaden your horizons when yeah. you live in kind of a, a small town. Makes sense. Makes sense. So when did you leave the small town the first time? Do you remember? Uh, you know, the first time that I moved out of um, uh, uh, Clemens was uh, to go to uh, Duke, which was just down the street. Uh, for me, it was kind of interesting. I say just down the street, it was probably two hours away. Um, but uh, it was fascinating for me because uh, Duke was a world away. Um, and I felt so fortunate to go there. And it, it, it you know, I joked that there's this this wall around the campus. The wall's about two feet tall. It's made of stones. It's more of like a symbolic wall than an actual wall. But when you cross that wall, um, you know, all of a sudden you could live anywhere. You can be in almost any country or certainly any city in the United States. That was just a wonderful experience for me. I felt really lucky to get to go to school there and um, learn from a lot of the amazing folks that were there. So um, it was kind of wild to be, you know, two hours from home, but I'm in a totally different world. And you studied like pretty deep science, right? What is it, physics and something? Yeah, I, I studied uh, chemistry, biology. I spent a lot of time in the physics lab. Um, you know, I, I thought for a long time that um, I would go first. I thought I'd be a doctor and then I kind of shifted that, that that viewpoint and um, then thought I might go get a Ph.D. in science, um, uh, probably either chemistry or physics. Um, and. Uh, I loved, you know, my interaction. I spent a lot of time in the, in, in the laser lab um, uh, doing kind of optical imaging, which was great. Gotcha. I was going to say, please define laser lab, but that makes sense when you say optical imaging. Okay. Yeah, it was it was it was really wonderful. Um, you know, it was actually my senior year of college when uh, a couple of my close friends uh, came to me and said, "Hey, Zach, you know, you could absolutely stay in academia forever. Um, you might enjoy that path. Um, we, we certainly understand that you enjoy science, but you could also go to the business world for a year." then you can come back. And, you know, if you get a PhD, you can always get a PhD. But if, if you go out of undergrad and you don't get any business experience, you know, you'll be pigeonholed. It'll be a little harder to, to yeah. shift back if you want to do business. And that was, you know, one of the best, I wouldn't quite call it an intervention, but uh, one, one, of, one of the best pieces of advice. <laughs> Scientific that, intervention. Exactly. Uh, one, one of the best pieces of advice that my friends ever gave me because um, I got into the business world and figured out that I loved it. You know, I'd spent approximately zero time uh, learning about anything in business. Uh, Duke, for all of its wonderful startup community now, um, didn't have much of a startup community when right. I was there. You know, even having taken some computer science classes when I was there, you don't you don't get that exposed to uh, the world of building software. Yeah. Um, and so I felt really fortunate to have, you know, a year of, uh, initially a year of like actual business training and kind of like learning more and more about that ecosystem, which then le led me down the path of thinking that you know, working in the business world, ideally starting starting companies or working in early stage startups could have a much larger impact on human beings than, um, uh, you know, I might have been able to have uh, as a researcher. And that was, uh, you know, a, a very lucky break for me. And you were in the consulting world at that point, right? Yes. Okay. I, I worked in bank consulting. Yeah. Um, amazing training. Uh, amazing people. Uh, I felt, as I said uh, about Duke, but I, I felt really lucky and fortunate to get uh, an offer to go work there. The hardest part for me, though, was that you didn't um, end up building anything. You you came to a lot of recommendations about what to build, yeah, um, but you didn't end up, you know, actually getting to do it. And uh, so I was there. I was at Bain for I think about thirteen months. Um, one bonus cycle. Um, yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, at the end of uh, my thirteen months, I got a bonus. I think it was four thousand dollars, and for me, that was you know all the money that I'd ever seen in the world, or more money than I'd ever seen in the world. Yeah. 
And that allowed me to, you know, go pursue the things that I wanted to pursue. Little did I know that $4,000 would run out very quickly um, <laughs> if you try to start a startup. So I, I was consulting in Atlanta, moved to New York um, to try to kind of enter the startup community. And first. then you were broke. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you stepped foot in New York and you were $0. Pretty, pretty much that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so it was... Uh, a rude awakening, but um, you know it, it was a great launching point, and I, I feel really um, lucky to have, have have learned from all those folks. Yeah. So, was there like a journey through the forest of entrepreneurship or something between like the consulting piece getting into Plaid, or did you jump like meet William? I guess at a climbing wall, apparently, based on our quick conversation about the climbing shoes in the corner, and then go straight into Plaid. Like, what was? How did that transition happen? Uh, so, I met William, my my, my co-founder um, at Bain. Um, okay, gotcha. He was there. We like I was the person that was um, assigned to teach him Excel. Uh, I think that was the last. That's hilarious. Yeah. What? <laughs> that was the last technical thing that I ever taught William. Uh, and then he started teaching you <laughs> pr pr pretty quickly. You know, within a couple of days, I was like, "All right, well, he's a he's CTO." Yeah, exactly. Okay. Anyway, so we met we met a band very quickly. We became friends uh, over climbing. Um, I, he was a big climber. I enjoyed it, and so we we went climbing a bunch. Um, I think, outdoor, indoor. What are we doing? Uh, mostly indoor because that's what was available in Atlanta. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I forgot we were in Georgia. But actually, there's probably there, some there's, good there's outdoor some, there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, kind of whatever, but most of our time was probably indoor. I think I remember the the first time I knew that we'd actually be friends is I probably. I dropped him from, I think, about 20 feet. Um, <laughs> uh, he landed just fine. He jumped up. He said, don't worry about it, but don't do that again. Uh, and uh, after that, you know, the, the friendship was cemented. Um, and we're not going to have, I'm not going to have Zach belay me is one of my takeaways from from this. <laughs> that or you learned your lesson with William and you're the best belayer on earth now. I'm better at it now. Don't give me a new device and try to explain it how to, I don't know. Um, <laughs> yeah. You and William met and then it sounds like there wasn't much of a journey in the forest. Sounds like it was kind of vain. No, so we, we we met at Bain. Um, we both knew that we enjoyed startups. We both became friends, uh, kind of bonded over climbing, amongst other things, and both had this idea that you know working in startups would be really fun and interesting. Um, when I left Bain, I didn't know quite what I wanted to do. Um, I thought that being in the startup community would be a great experience. Um, I actually um, got the opportunity to work at TechStars in New York. And oh, and the Barclays one? No, actually, there was there was uh, just the a city? general TechStars uh, New York. Um, it was run by David Tish and Adam Rothenberg, and um, there's actually a TV show about it. Funny enough, if you go in the uh, the, the the deep annals of of, of uh, New York startup history, uh, of you course can find there a, is a, a TV show about it. Zero percent surprised about that for some reason. It was pretty good, pretty interesting. Um, but my my whole point was uh, I um, was in Atlanta, knew I wanted to do something in the startup world, had to had to go to where the startups were. For me, the options were go to New York or or, or go to San Francisco. Um, uh, TechStars was an interesting opportunity um, to go see how com companies were formed, um, see what the earliest stages was like. Um, also, uh, my girlfriend at the time was in New York, so it was a, it was a easier um, uh, transition. Uh, now, wife, by the way, so that's that's uh, been Congrats. a long Thank you. I was fortunate to get this opportunity to work as um, what they called a, an associate um, at TechStars, and so uh, you know that meant uh, go do kind of whatever the companies need. Um, but it was cool because they they brought 13 companies into one little office and you get to learn a lot about what a bunch of different companies were doing. You get to build relationships with people. Um, I think I worked there for two months. Um, I'm not sure if they paid me. I might, it might have been free. They might have paid me like a small amount, but it was not. I was going to say if they did, it wasn't much, I'm sure. It was not super well paid. <laughs> yeah. Um, you don't become a Techstars associate for the money. Exactly. Yeah. And 
you know, dur- during that time, William was also starting to think about what he wanted to do. Okay. Um, I think he was starting to apl- apply for like, you know, uh, product manager um, or engineering jobs. Um, but behind the scenes, the two of us were always talking about ideas and things that we wanted to work on. And, um, you know, this was around the time of Occupy Wall Street, um, if, if you remember that. Um, and setting the politics of it aside, it created this really kind of clear national attention towards the fact that consumers um, didn't have access to the financial products that they wanted. They didn't feel fully served by the financial system. Um, And so I think it was William who said, um, hey, you know, there might be something interesting for us to do in financial services. Like, Hmm. let's let's, let's think about it. Um, And I I love the idea. We kind of went back and forth on um, this concept of can we can we build something interesting in financial services? It it played to the things that we liked, which is um, a lot of data availability and having a very real impact on on humans. Can I, start, can I interrupt you there? So is that a North Star for you? I mean, you have officially said human, I think, like four times, maybe in like 10 minutes. And I feel like that is a generally a sign that someone is taking humanity into account and being aware of it and like treating it as some sort of a North Star. I say that word a lot, too. So it sticks out to me when someone else says it. Is that something you like are thinking about a lot? Like it sounds like you're a lot more thinking about the emotions of certain things and the you know human impact than the technical impact or the other side, I guess, like left brain versus right brain or something. Perhaps. Um, yeah, I, I, I guess I didn't notice that I did it, but it's a, it's a good call out. I, I tend to think a lot about um, how can the things that we do create positive impact on on, on humanity, on, on, yeah. on, on people. I'll get to how Plaid does that in a second, but I feel very fortunate that Plaid has had a very broad impact on you know tens or hundreds of millions of people, um, helping them gain access to the financial products that they need. Um, one of the stats that we looked at very early on in the company um, was, uh, you know, the stresses on the American consumer. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are these, these surveys that are done uh, semi-frequently that say, you know, what's, what's the biggest stress on people? And almost every year, the, the number one answer is money. Yeah. Um, and despite the fact that we can't, as Plaid, um, create more money for people, um, we can certainly help them feel less stressed about it. My hope in building Plaid, and, and frankly, it's very aligned with our mission, is to allow consumers to you know gain access to the things that they want to do to have a little bit more control of their financial life and the way that we frame it in our in our mission is we want to unlock financial freedom for everyone and this concept of financial freedom that means a lot to me um, because it gives people you know the ability to make the choice that they need to make to have access to the products that they need to have um, and then to be able to kind of ultimately live the life that they want to live by way of financial services instead of worrying about money all the time i mean so it sounds like that kind of desire and like inner drive has been there from the beginning but was that like a conscious thought from the start because i mean even actually a different question what was the initial version of the product of plaid is maybe the question i'm actually trying to ask here i think that's what i'm trying to drive towards because it's changed a lot yeah it's a good it's a good question um so before before we built kind of the thing that you would think of as plaid now we actually focused on building consumer applications we started with consumer budgeting and kind of spend analytics tools um, we built a handful of them. Um, none of them were very good, uh, if I'm totally honest. Was um, it because you didn't have the infrastructure to build it, Zach? That was that was one part of it. Um, <laughs> we had to build a lot of the infrastructure. The the, the second, and I'll I'll be um, uh, pretty humble about this. Um, building consumer experiences is really really hard. Uh, yeah. Building things that consumers like is hard, and importantly, building consumer experiences that are meant to help consumers make decisions that they should make but they don't want to make. Ooh. That's very very difficult, and so. Um, we have some some wonderful um, customers that are able to do this very, very well. I, as a founder, was not able to do this very well. 
Um, so, you know, we'd build a tool that would help a consumer understand where they're spending and maybe make a recommendation to spend a little less. The, the reaction that we saw from consumers was um, first ignoring the app. And then if we gave them too many notifications, uh, just deleting the product and, uh, you know, walking away from that thing. Yeah. Go uh, away, vitamin. I need a painkiller. Something like that. <laughs> Uh, we found that through the products that we built, uh, we weren't able to gain a lot of traction. We ended up building things that were a little bit more fun eventually. So things like that would make recommendations to you or things that would create interesting analysis of your spend, mm -hmm. um, which I think maybe we were a little bit more on the side of uh, the right side of consumer psychology when we did that, because you know, consumers want to engage with things that are interesting as opposed to things that tell them what to do. Yeah. But regardless, we were very unsuccessful consumer founders. Did that for... I don't know. It, it was a, a long time of kind of walking through the woods on that. We probably did. Did it, it feel like a long time or was it actually a long time? I think it was nine or 12 months. Okay. Um, yeah. And it what did your, what was the investor mix at this point? So you were like having a con, you've raised the initial funding on a consumer oriented idea. Right. And then, I mean, not the first founder in the world to go back and say, Hey, by the way, we pivoted, but what were those conversations like? Yeah, so we we had actually very little funding at the time. I had my you know four thousand dollar bonus check, which ran out immediately. Um, <laughs> and I think for in the first year to two years of starting the company, we raised sixty thousand dollars collectively. Wow. Okay. And somehow had to kind of survive off of that, which meant a lot of scrappiness in our personal lives. My my co-founder lived on a friend's couch. I moved in with my girlfriend almost immediately after we started dating. And we were able to keep expenses down and we, we worked out of borrowed conference rooms and things like that. Yeah. So it was a very, you know, humble time. It's kind and of romantic actually to like, I feel like today there's just so much like co-working and like, even if you raise 60 K, like you can generally find a way probably to do a thing and like what, you know, and it seemed like, I don't know, that just sounds more romantic. The idea of William sleeping on a couch. Like, I just love that for some reason. <laughs> I think I think actually he did too. Uh, yeah, 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 there's something nice about it. I mean, it's, it's also like in retrospect, such a nice story to tell, right? I mean, it's like you've been through it, you're on the other side of it. Like, it's it's cool. Yeah, yeah. I think it was a, a good time. I think it formed a lot of, in many senses, the 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 early culture of the company. It created really tight bonds between myself and William. We also had one intern early on who ended up joining us full time later, and you know, the three of us were, were were very tight, which was which was nice. What's that intern doing now? I'm very curious. He was an engineering manager, engineering lead at Plaid for many, many years. Then he went off to take a sabbatical and learn to fly airplanes. I think he's flying airplanes a lot. And I think he's, I think he's now starting to think about his next company. But Sounds I'm, wildly unhappy. I haven't caught up with him a little bit. Um, <laughs> it sounds like he's living a rough life. Reminder. That's cool. Cool. So anyway, so we, we worked on consumer applications for a while. And just in talking to folks in the fintech community, and if you remember, this was in 2013-ish, the fintech community that was forming in New York City was totally wonderful. It was tiny. No one quite knew what they were doing. There was so much involvement from people that worked at big banks that kind of wanted to do fintech but weren't sure quite what would happen. Yeah. But also just a lot of a lot of really scrappy builders that were saying, you know, building something in financial services, we believe that it's possible. And the funny thing is that the VC lore at the time was we'll never invest in financial services. That is an uninvestable space. Whoa, because, really? Yeah. Because the big banks are just going to do everything and it's there's there's too much regulation in this area. So, you know, we're not going to invest in that space. That's fascinating. Uh, I was still at college at that point and I thought of fintech as like this, you know, wildly prom that's wild to think about. And this this is before there was a name for fintech. I don't think the name for fintech came around until like 2015, 2016. Uh, and there's always questions on are you going to capitalize it or not? I remember the the early debates. Oh, it um, still seems like it's a debate. I mean, Seems like Twitter doesn't have a ton of good things to talk about based on the amount that I still see that. That's fair. 
so early on, we we kind of built these these financial products, and we would just talk to everyone that we could. There were people that would give us feedback on it. There were people that would maybe try using it. There were people that would tell us that they were kind of dumb products. <laughs> and we we had a couple of customers, well, eventual customers, come to us and say, "Hey, you know, the back end to this is kind of interesting. Could we license the back end?" One particular one that we knew is this guy from Venmo who was very serious and said, "Hey, look, we'd like to license the back end. And by the way, we want you to build us some new features." And I don't think he quite said these words, but the implication was that consumer thing that you're building is not very good. Um, <laughs> he was right. We didn't listen to him. Uh, I was going to say, how did your brain take that at that point? Oh, it, it definitely took a little while to, you know, you have the, the, the pride of authorship. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You built this thing. You're like, you believe that it's going to be good. I think the writing was on the wall that it wasn't very good. But kind of making that shift towards, towards, towards the platform side was eventually a kind of dead obvious in retrospect type thing. Plus, if I'm honest, it much better aligned with our skills and what we wanted to do. We wanted to build something that enabled consumers to live a better financial life. We wanted to you know, help the people that were saying that the, that the banks weren't serving them or the financial industry, I should say, wasn't serving them very well. And we could, by building a platform, help, at the time, we thought maybe even a million people live better financial life. Now it's, now it's obviously much larger than that. And importantly, we didn't have to build any more consumer apps, which was uh, uh, <laughs> that was proven, the real that was the win. It was proven to us that we were bad at this, so we must we must stop doing that thing. And so that was that was kind of the pivot. And it was a slow pivot, if I'm honest. We would still build the consumer app, and then we'd kind of build some of the infrastructure, and then license it and get a little bit of revenue from that side. But think about should we build more consumer app? And then at some point, we actually said we were going to pivot fully, build the infrastructure, but we didn't have any sort of brand. No one knew who we were. And so doing B2B sales when no one knows who you are is a little hard. Yeah. So we actually went back and <laughs> built another consumer app in a TechCrunch hackathon and ended up winning that hackathon. And that was the first real recognition where we went on stage. We said, hey, look, we built this app that you know all the people in the audience were using. It was this way to visualize your spend. It was really, really fun, fun view. You can probably find the, the video on YouTube. But then we said, also, we built it on the Plaid API, which is our company. And anyone else that wants to build things in financial services, you should use that. And that was the first time where... You know, we really started to get people coming to us saying, oh, there's there's something interesting here. Maybe I could use this in my product. And that was a good launching point for us. Yeah. Did you I mean, it sounds like you did, but did you wrestle with that? Like was was letting the baby go a difficult thing? It sounds like the or, consumer apps. Yeah, not really. Not at the end I when mean, you realize the it, potential it scale. And, it took some time to yeah. to to realize that the B2B business was a good business. Yeah. But once we realized that, it was pretty easy to say, hey, we're pretty bad at this other thing and you know, we Let's weren't successful this. over here. We should yeah. really focus on B2B. So since then, I think I mean there's a, you know, a lot between then and Visa and the like everything going on today. But one of the questions I really am curious about is kind of how you've scaled yourself. And like being that person with the four grand coming out of Bain, being like, I mean, it's so funny to think about you being an associate of Techstars and then like not that many years later being the CEO of a multi-billion dollar company is just like such a fucking awesome trajectory. How have you gone from like scrappy day one CEO to, I mean, how many people does Platt have now? Yeah, a thousand? Right around a thousand. I mean, that's... It seems like different skill sets and it seems like you would have to learn, unlearn, relearn all kinds of different things in there. Yeah, very, very different skill sets. I, I, I totally agree with that. Look, I, I think the the answer to this is it's it's a perpetual work in progress. And I think, you know, any leader would probably say the same thing if you, sure. if you ask them. Sure. I, I do think that the really early, scrappy, difficult beginnings really drilled into this this concept of humility. And we have... We, company values and humility has pretty much always been one of our company values. It's been a thing that we all think a lot about. 
it's also paired with another one, which is growth. And those two together kind of put you in the right mindset to say, I don't know how to do this job. You know, when, when we started Applied, I was, I think, 24. I think William was 22 or 23. And, you know, I had no idea how to do the job. When I became a manager of people, because, you know, we hired some people, right. I had no idea how to be a manager. <laughs> yeah. um, I think just coming at it with, for me, the, I have this quote that my high school physics teacher told me. It was like right when I started AP physics and I was struggling with the first problem. And she comes up to me and she goes, Zach, you can learn anything. And I don't think she meant it in that way. But for me, that's always stuck with me because, you know, you can learn anything. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy. But if you say, you know, I don't know, and then you are willing to go and do the work to, to, to learn the thing, it, it tends to recover very well. And so pretty early on in the company, I had this realization, you know, I actually have no idea how to do the thing that I really want to do. Mm. And the only tools that I have are, you know, effort and things related to effort. And so now my job is to go learn all of these things. And, you know, I have this weird belief in my head that I could learn anything, which might not actually have been true. But then I started focusing on, you know, what's the next thing that I need to learn? And for me, that came in a variety of methods. So first is just reading things that are on the internet. Was there has, anything like really formative in the early days that was like a, I don't know, a Bible of some sort for you or anything in that world? No, not not, not really. I would say some of the other tools were actually much more formative. So first was re- reading things on the internet. Second is reading books. Um, mm. But books actually weren't useful f- for a while. Books became very useful to me kind of halfway through the plot journey, or at least the plot journey today. It turns out no one writes a book about running a four-person company. Uh, write books about yeah, Andy Grove didn't write the four people in a room book. Exactly. Fair. But I can't remember who taught me this, but at some point someone said, hey, look, you can just email people and they'll talk to you. And <laughs> for me... Shh, don't tell people, Zach. It's, it's a secret, dude. This is, we're not supposed to get this out in the world. That's part of the Illuminati secrets. Yeah, for, for, for me, that was probably the biggest tool. That, yeah. was, that was the most formative one yeah. is... I just started cold emailing people that I was impressed by or people that I thought could teach me something or people that had been a little further on the journey. I still do this even now. You know, Can you share any recent ones? I'm so curious what a person of, of your nature is cold emailing people or who they're cold emailing. I, I cold email a lot of people. The funny thing is, if you're kind of in a leadership role in Silicon Valley, there's a decent chance that there's an email in your inbox for me. I'm just saying, like, I'm Zach, like, I'd love to, like, I, I've been really impressed by this thing that, yeah. that you do. Like, I'd love to learn from you. Would you be willing to spend a spare 10 minutes? And when I was 24 and doing this, the hit rate was like 2%. Um, but if you send 100 emails, that's two conversations. Yeah. And that's pretty good. Like, people people are really giving with their time. Now the hit rate's a little higher. People have heard of Plaid and, you know, the... the this the, guy, the he says a little good. higher, this guy. But <laughs> it, it's still a thing that I, still a thing that I do a lot. That's and, cool. And, you know, we're, we're working on recruiting an exec role. We're re- working on recruiting a CFO right now. And I probably reached out to 20 CFOs just to say, hey, would you talk to me about what your job is? Like how you think about your job, how you got your job. If you were recruiting for your job, how would you be doing yeah. this recruiting? How should I structure the role internally? Those kinds of things are just hugely helpful to, to kind of level up me, but level up the company as well. And the amazing part of it is it oftentimes creates long lasting relationships. Like people love giving advice if you're kind about it, if you yeah. give them good follow up, so on and so forth. And so it's created this like, you know, loose, I wouldn't even call it a mentor relationship, but this loose relationship with a lot of people where I can now call them and, you know, they'll, they'll give input. And that's, that's pretty amazing. Do they ask you questions back on those conversations or do you spend the whole time peppering them with questions, get off the phone and basically they've talked the whole time? Just curious. It kind of, kind of depends on, on the person. Yeah. Uh, some people love to hear about what we're doing as a company. Some yeah. people love to hear about the context of why some people just love giving advice and, and, and that works super well too. It's yeah. kind of whatever the person wants. 
increasingly now people want to talk about plaid and the journey sure. and they they love engaging on the strategic problems that we're facing i think you know you you find a smart person and you say hey here's a strategic problem you want to go for a coffee and talk about it right people people will engage in that yeah. and certainly i would engage in that yeah so it sounds like i mean at every stage probably i mean the current version is the cfo previously i'm sure there were a lot of different versions of that but oh, you've I've, been just doing the emailing thing like it sounds like that is probably the most valuable piece of most, all of that probably the most yeah. valuable piece of piece of learning for me now let's take a moment to talk about our exclusive sponsor, FS Vector. Relationships, relationships, one more time, relationships. One of the hardest parts of building a meaningful company in the world of finance is understanding what's actually happening in Washington with agencies, the administration, everything going on on Capitol Hill. Who do you actually go to for what in the world of government in general? It is just confusing. We may want to think we're disconnected from the world of politics, building companies. But if we've seen anything this year, it's that we're not. We are very tied to it. The ability to pick up the phone and get an opinion from a decision maker in this world, in the world of politics, is worth its weight in gold. Those aren't calls just anyone can make. This is why I recommend FS Vector. Those are the relationships they have. They have partners and senior advisors that have been cultivating those relationships for decades. Some of them have even been on the show. You may know John Betchia. You may know Amy Friend. You may know folks like that. They've been around. They've started building those relationships before they needed them, which is exactly what I recommend anyone do with their government affairs slash policy strategy. Don't wait until it's too late. Get advisors, good ones even, good ones especially, only good ones, and the good ones are at FS Vector. Reach out to FS Vector, go into that contact us, and write in all caps at the top of the form, Zach sent me. FSVector.com and tell him Zach sent you. I guess, how do you think about like leadership versus management too is another thing, like the the Andy Grove, you know, kind of management totem sort of situation versus like, you know, this wildly inspirational leader persona thing. You know, it's, it's very interesting to try to think through that question. I don't think of myself as the best manager. I think of myself as probably a, a good manager and certainly a good manager to the, the style of people that I need to work with now, yeah. which are oftentimes really senior execs. Yeah. But the reality is I look at the managers at Plaid, someone that's managing a team of, you know, 12, 14, I look at the execution of them and I'm just so like, <laughs> it's, just, it's just impressive when, you know, the, the diligence they have, the focus they have, uh, the tools they have, the, the, the ability that they have to like help get the best out of their people and help their yeah. people grow. It's amazing. I don't think I ever had that skill set. I think I leaned a lot more towards, you know, how do I set the direction for the company? How do I inspire people? How do I hire people that are really good at doing that management thing that I, yeah. I myself am not that good at? One of the principles that we have within Plaid in hiring is we call it hiring for spikes. So for spikes? Hiring for spikes. Yeah. yeah. So we look for people that have huge strengths, even if that means they also have huge weaknesses, so long as those weaknesses are not cultural weaknesses. And if you can kind of develop what we call a spiky team, so people that are, you know, in a situation where they can go capitalize on their strength, and we believe that you're going to get much more than a super well-rounded team where people don't have as high strengths. Now, it's it's a harder philosophy to build a company around, but we think that you get much more out of the people. And frankly, people are a lot happier if they're able to do things that, that leverage their strengths. So my strengths was, ne was never you know managing 14 people, right. was never being the best day-to-day -day manager. It was much more on hiring the right people, enabling the right people, setting the right direction, inspiring people. And so 
you know, for me, I lean much more towards this concept of if, if you think of the triangle, there's there, there's doer, there's leader, there's manager. I lean much more towards the doer leader side. Uh, and I actually think the doer is a really important component of my job. You know, if I'm working on a deal, like I have to be able to build a really good relationship with that person. I have to be able to sell. Yeah. If I'm working recruiting candidate, I'd have to be able to recruit. I have to be able to source. I have to be able to do those, those actions. And being able to be part doer when you're leading a large organization is actually a super high leverage activity. So I leaned more into the doer leader side uh, and tried to just be transparent about anyone that I hired exactly what they get from me on the management side. And it, it's had issues, but on the whole, I think it's worked very well. Well, yeah, I mean, it's a it's a setting example thing, right? I mean, I guess that that makes sense. I'm curious about a couple different things, but especially based on the kind of doer piece, what does like the average Zach day look like? Like how much time are you spending in an office, on a climbing wall, like just talk me through like a whole, a whole Zach day. What time are you getting up? Like, are you Jocko Willink? Are you getting up at 4.30 and like, just like inspiring everyone with a picture of your watch or something? What's going on? No, I would say th- there really is no average day and, and maybe I should aspire to have more consistency, but nah, I would say like, sound fun. I'm, I'm usually up pretty early on a good day. I'll go for a run before, before work. I said, I probably get that in about half the time. On a great day, I'll wake up early enough to go surfing. Perhaps I live in California, so that makes it a little easier. How long of a run are we talking here? Like, how crazy are you? A few miles. No, nothing crazy. Okay, that's um, two, a few miles more than I would ever do, but not nuts. Yeah. And then, you know, diving into the day, I try to put all of my meetings in the morning, the most effective meetings in the morning. And I also feel like it's a good kickstart to the day for, for a lot of big things. So generally, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday are like half a day, I would say, of meetings. At the beginning of the week, a lot of it is kind of like alignment-oriented meetings. So yeah. like, you know, are, are we focusing the right thing for the week? Right. Towards the end of the week, it's more one-on-ones and delivery-oriented meetings. So, you know, is this thing that that is being delivered, like kind of holding people accountable to, to, to the goals they set? Wednesdays is no meeting days. So I, I try to do this. We do this for most of the company. So for anyone that's in kind of a, a building-oriented role, yeah. I try to keep Wednesdays as like a focus day. So we do a morning stand-up for 15 minutes. That's it. And then kind of focus on getting a lot of things done. Is that a company-wide stand-up? No, it's not company-wide stand-up. It's just it's team stand-up. Yeah. Gotcha. So so I do it for the exec team. The exec yeah. team then does them one with their team. That kind yep. of cascades down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Having a 15-minute focus time at the beginning of the day to say, hey, what are we going get, to get, get done today even? And then having a long day to focus on it is it's a, it's a key part of our culture. And a lot of folks really love it. Yeah. A, a good focus day. And then afternoons, I try to keep relatively open to kind of like follow what whatever the highest priority thing is. Yeah. Usually that's some combination of talking to customers, synthesizing the things that comes back from customers so that our team can react to it. Sometimes it's solving some big strategic product problem. I try not to get too into the weeds, but you know, my natural orientation is to go into the details as 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 much as I can. And so, yeah. you know, I, I, I try to stay back from that, but every now and then you have to go deep on 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 one big challenge or another. Do you like that? Like when you can just like engross yourself in one problem, is that kind of enjoyable i mean i guess you're fucking solving a hard problem so that probably sucks but in terms of like the energy of it like do you enjoy that oh i love it if you're kind of you kind of lit up when you started talking about it that's why i asked <laughs> yeah the, i mean like one of the most fun parts of my job is to go really deep in a certain yeah. portion of the product and and make it perfect if i do that too much it's incredibly disempowering to the team and so i have to be really selective about where and when i can go deep what is the most important thing how do I engage? Most importantly, how do I disengage from going really deep yeah. in a certain product area? That's that's been the thing that I probably learned the most over the last year or two is going deep, getting it on the right track, and then finding a way for it to be self-sustaining without my involvement anymore. Yeah. Um, Does so that stress I, you out to step back sometimes? 
yeah, it stressed me out. But 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 at the end of the day, you get to look back and say, oh, this thing's actually very successful yeah. now, and I'm excited about it. Or oh, I, I totally failed at that thing, and and what did I learn, and and how do we become a better yeah. organization for it? So sometimes it's going deep on product. Uh, hopefully not too much. If I'm going deep too much on product, then that's that's a challenge. And yeah. either I'm I'm doing it too much because I want to do it too much, or I'm doing it too much because something's really off track. And yeah. neither are uh, neither yeah. are excellent outcomes for the organization. And then at the end of the day, I always have some round of calls. So there's always a you know got to catch up on this thing. Got to got to pick up the phone and 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 talk to someone. My COO tends to just like call me almost every day or two. Yeah. Just to talk about, hey, you know, had this deal, heard this thing from a customer, whatever it is. But that end of the day, kind of like get on a call. Sometimes I go outside and walk around when yeah. I'm doing it. It's nice to yeah. nice to move. It's really good. Yeah. How do you process? Are you like a verbal processor? Like does it help to have that end of, that call at the end of the day? I didn't think you'd be a verbal processor. I figured writing or just sitting and thinking, leave me the hell alone. Yeah. I, I get <laughs> I get most of my thinking done, funny enough, on planes. So I, I travel mm. a lot, visiting our offices, visiting our teams, spending time yeah. with customers. I actually love, you know, that minute you, you you walk through the airport, you sit down on the airplane, I put headphones in and it's like my quiet time. So for however long that flight is, forever, however long it's going to take me to get through the airport, whatever it is, I've got headphones in. I'm usually not listening to anything. No you know, way. I, I was about want, to ask. Yeah, I just I just don't want people to to talk to me. And, and I don't I don't mean that I, I don't do want that to talk the office to all the time. <laughs> I feel bad to say that a little bit because I, I, I do love engaging with people, but that's this my thinking time. And so Sometimes I'll even just play background static. Yeah. This is so, so random, but do you remember how we met? No, not the first day. Yes, yes. I met you on the street. <laughs> yeah. do you, you don't think, for the record, listeners, there is a third person in the room, Freya. And I just, I have, it's hard for me to act like she's not here. So I'm just going to look at her and be like, oh my God, did you know this story? And she's like, no, what the hell are you talking about? This wasn't part of the prep. But I scared the hell out of Zach about a year ago. Oh, like over a year ago, I think, actually. Yeah, it was maybe a maybe year and a half. Two yeah, years. year and a half, something like that. Like we were, it was at La Colombe, like over... Like pretty close to here, actually. And you were, I think you were meeting someone for coffee. I was just coming out of the coffee shop and you were standing like facing the other way. And I was like, Zach? And I like from around the corner, I could see his face like, fuck. Like, <laughs> oh God, I'm in public and somebody wrecking like, this is not, this is either a customer. Or I don't want to have this conversation, whatever this conversation is. And he turned around, I was like, it's Zach. And he was like, hey, <laughs> just like took a second. And then you were <laughs> It was hilarious, but I could tell in that moment that you were just like, oh, God, I don't want to turn around. Keep going. It took me a minute. Zach Pettit. It, yeah. Pronounce it Pettit, right? Yeah. Zach Pettit and I have very similar Twitter handles. So I, I there'd been some confusion. Been mistweeted some jokes, before. Some, some jokes made online. And this I, has been a long time coming. In I'd, terms I'd of the seen Zach. his photo before, but recognizing you in person was different. I think your hair was different than it was in your photo or something like that. Or maybe, maybe I just didn't remember. Yeah, but I don't know. It, was, it took me a minute, but it was it was funny. Funny enough, I actually went there for coffee this morning. That coffee shop is directly across the street from our office. So, oh, yeah, okay. Well, that's lot. full circle and hilarious. So you probably thought it was like a customer coming to visit or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, anyway, hilarious. Let's go to let's go to the visa transaction. I think that's something that I really am not necessarily wanting to understand, like the ins and out of ins and outs of, but more so just like what was that like for you? personally emotionally at home like seems heavy seems like a lot of you know spotlights on you for an extended period of time seems interesting yeah so the the, the visa transaction was it was a fascinating thing to go through in retrospect going into the visa transaction making the decision to sell the company that's that's i think it's the hardest decision that an entrepreneur makes whether or not to sell a company because i think in in every entrepreneurial journey that has some some amount of success there is a point where you say, do I want to sell? Do I not want to sell? In some entrepreneurial yeah. journeys, there's many of those points, perhaps. 
But in our case, the offer from Visa was a very compelling one for many reasons. We thought that it could massively accelerate our growth in a lot of respects, could help us go international, could help us gain access to new users. It was good financially. It was a good financial return for the company. And, you know, it was a very hard decision for us to make. I remember we had the series of, of exec team meetings, including William, who had left the company before, but was on the board. So it's close enough that we'd invite him to some of these meetings. And, yeah. and, and he's really helpful. And we did all of these meetings in the living room of my house in San Francisco because wow. you couldn't you couldn't go into the office and have this discussion. You know, we were worried about confidentiality, but moreover, we wanted people to be in a headspace that was, you know, different, that, that was that was free and clear and, and so forth. And so there's a lot of debate on this. And if I'm honest, the leadership team was not universally aligned on kind of the, the selling the company decision. And that's a good thing. We, we love debate. We don't want to be, if we're universally aligned on a decision, it, it means that we were way too slow to make that decision. Interesting. And so in this case, there's a lot of debate and a lot of back and forth. How many um, people were in that room? Seven or eight. I don't remember the exact, the exact number, but yeah. it, was, it was something like that. I was sitting, sitting, sitting in my living room and, you know, that was a hard decision to to sell the company. I think the the harder thing, and frankly, the more exciting thing, was announcing it to the team. I remember this was like the all hands that I'll never forget. It was in San Francisco. It was January of 2020. So COVID wasn't oh, a thing yet. Oh, God. I was just like nodding my head along yeah. with you. Like, this is a good story. And then I thought about what was happening Two, yeah. three months later. Yeah, Jeez. So January okay, yeah. 2020. Yeah. The, the office was packed and we had this like huge stair step in our San Francisco office and like everyone's sitting on the stairs to watch the all hands. And I remember going up and starting the all hands and like, as I was walking up, the story leaked. And I think Freya from our comps team and Heather from our comps team came to me and they were like, hey, Zach, the story is leaking right now. So the team might see it. Um, like you're walking up, like you're literally exactly. <laughs> Freya grabs um, you. Okay. And so he did this all hands. And that was one of the, the hardest, most rewarding, all hands. Like you look out at the the team of people, and like some people are crying, some people are like ecstatic, some people are like, oh no, frustrated. It was like this range of emotions from the team. And then we ended up having actually Visa, one of the leaders from Visa, show up towards the end of it and and, and actually give some 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 context as well. But I remember that like that was like the emotional roller coaster, the emotional yeah. journey. Yeah, How was that, that for you in that moment, watching all the, like, you know, all these, the spectrum of reactions? You know, the, the thing that people tell you is wiggle your toes, you know, because for me, it's that like... That is not what I expected him to say next, Freya. I did not expect wiggle your toes to be the next thing Zach said to me. Like, in it, when, when you're in one of those big situations... I'm now wiggling my toes. Wiggle your toes, you feel more present. Like, <laughs> yeah, I actually, I get right, it now. I'm yeah. in my body, I'm, I'm experiencing this thing. Because it's very easy for days like that just to be a blur of, you know, the life that I'm, I'm living is actually a TV show. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Yeah, you know, someone someone had said this to me. I don't know when I was in college, and so you got to think about it. Wiggle your toes every now and then, and just hmm. be be really present in that moment. So it was amazing. Like it was it was an incredibly fun thing. You end up at this place where you built a company, and and it's worth something, and you can deliver value back to your employees and your shareholders. I deeply believed that had that transaction closed, it would have been amazing for our customers, and that was you know just this this truly unique experience. I'll never I'll never forget it. I remember I came home that night and i think i i think i got home really late because i think it was at the office just talking to people and, and until maybe like 11 or 12 and i got home i laid down in, in bed and i was just like totally exhausted like yeah. couldn't move exhausted yeah and so anyway so fast forward a little bit we we then work on closing the transaction it takes a while there's this obviously investigation from the doj for 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 antitrust and as that's starting then COVID happens and like shut down everything world changes and what was your like okay so like take me to i mean it doesn't have to be march or whatever but you just described three two three four gigantic fucking things at one time yeah. there that would 
one of those on my shoulders would put me on the floor and I'd be crying on the corner. And you're talking about like three or four of those at once. So, I mean, I guess, I guess the question is like, one, what was that like? But two, like, what's, what's your support system? Like, obviously your wife is probably part of that, but who are you talking all this shit through with out, outside of your COO, I guess, or maybe your COO plays like that big of a role emotionally there even. Yeah. Like I, I would say, yeah, not, our, not just our COO, but like our, our entire leadership team has been truly amazing. So I'm lucky to work with our CTO for now six, six and a half years. He, he, he and I work really, really closely together. Number of other great leaders on the leadership team. And it's just, it's just people that it's, it's people like that, that you, you can talk to and yeah. they understand the decision. They understand the complexities of it. They're there. I think my wife is obviously a big, a big part of that. And How then, much do you talk to her about work? You don't have oh, to answer that, She's but I'm wildly curious. Oh, she is? Yeah. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah, so she founded a women's health company called Modern Fertility and oh, um, wow. uh, sold it. And now I joke that she's a successful one in selling things. Um, <laughs> That's yeah. actually hilarious. Do and, you have to be careful about how much you two talk about business then in that case? Like, do you have to like kind of measure that? We have to be careful of confidentiality, but the nice thing oh, is yeah, that makes um, sense. having a partner that has a very similar journey. Yeah. You know, she understands the days, which is, yeah. which is really great. So at least a little less sleep for both of us sometimes if we have crazy times at the same time. Yeah. But I know it's, it's always been really wonderful. So we're going, going backwards to, to the journey. So signed docs to sell the company in January, 2020, big announcement, visa brand, tons of bank conversations, tons of customer conversations. You kind of get everything stabilized. Then, then March happens and, and we all go into COVID lockdown and, you know, you start to look at the public stock prices and, you know, in April you say, yeah. Man, we're geniuses. You know, we had an all cash deal <laughs> yeah. Yeah, with a contingency such that there was no material adverse effect, even in the case of pandemics. I'm, like we literally had a, a line. There was literally a clause. There was a clause in this thing. It's just the standard clause that says they cannot walk away from the deal <laughs> in the case of a pandemic, which is wild. Contracts are fascinating things. <laughs> exactly. And so you're you're in April and you say, wow, this is we're geniuses. It's going to be great. And then you take towards May, you take towards June, you say, maybe there's some recovery out there. And then around that time, our business just starts going bananas because consumers, they they can't go to a bank branch anymore, and right. yet they still need a loan. Yep. They can't do all the things they need to do in their financial life. And so FinTech was a huge lifeline to consumers. We had people in demographics that we didn't expect um, engaging in FinTech in a hugely different way. So hmm. you know, we had people that were in their, their 60s, their 70s, their 80s starting yeah. to think about how do I use FinTech products. Right. And we had expected that it would take a while to get to those kinds of demographics. And... So that was a, a great journey. And for us, a lot of this was like just holding on. Can we can we deal with what's happening here? Can we deal with growth? Now, how do we build the team in order to respond to it? Then we get to the end of, kind of towards the end of 2020. And we're realizing that we're, we're running a, just a different business, yeah, hmm. a totally different business. We, we'd seen a ton of growth in one respect. The brand had grown tremendously thanks to, thanks to Visa in many respects. We kind of reached this point of no return where we knew that fintech was going to be a really big market. We knew that we'd be able to continue scaling for for quite a long time. And as we were getting towards 2021, we started to realize there's this exclusivity thing that's going to lapse. Like we're going to be able to walk away from this deal if we get that far. And I don't think that we were rooting for it. You know, had the deal closed, we would have been ecstatic. But yeah. when we got to that date, we did another one of these leadership team meetings in my in my living room again in San Francisco. And this time it was a little different because it was during COVID. So we had this big God. door open, yeah. half the team sitting outside, half the team sitting inside. Yeah, just yelling confidentiality things at each other like from across the room. <laughs> I disagree. Yeah. <laughs> it's very but, parliamentary. But this time the decision was unanimous. So we knew that if, and this was like kind of a couple weeks before, we knew that if we reached exclusivity laps, we were going to walk away from the deal. 
And we wanted to do it in a way that we supported Visa, that Visa and, and Plaid felt like it was, a, it, it, and, and indeed it was a mutual party. But, you know, that decision was fairly straightforward. So kind of make that, re-announce it to the team, this time on Zoom, a lot harder to do that announcement. Frankly, the range of emotions was probably even wider on that announcement from the team. I would um, think so. Because there were people that, had, you know, you spend the money in your head. You think about what I'm going to do if, if I'm going to get this, this amount of money and you just it's not going to happen. Not yeah. to say that it won't happen that much or a lot more over right. time, but it's going to take some time to get there. Yeah. You know, the liquidity horizons further out. And so I actually think that the next the next like four or five months were the hardest months that I ever had applied hmm. because you'd whip off the company. It was like a very successful, like, you know, growth oriented outback, like I- impact. The numbers were really, really good, but the emotional journey that everyone had gone on and the amount of time that you need to spend with people setting super clear direction, helping them understand the rationale of the decision as best mm-hmm. you can. You can't explain all the details. But yeah, that has to be hard to hold pieces of it. Back. Like, I want to tell you this other thing that got us there, but I can't, but you just need to trust me, but I promise, but it can't like, yeah, it's hard. that has to be so and, frustrating. And then the reality is coming out of COVID, we had to rebuild the team. Like yeah. there were certain roles that we just fundamentally couldn't have hired for while we were in the midst of this transaction. Right. We also had people that were saying, you know, either I really want to work at Visa because, you know, the stock's public and, and, and it's high liquidity, or I really don't want to work at Visa for one reason or another. Now, the employee profile that you're hiring like, immediately shifts. And like some, you hired some of the, the last type and you have to now yeah. help them get through that journey too. So it's, it's actually funny there. Like that was a period of probably the least sleep that I've had during Plaid, mm-hmm. even relative to the early days. It's just these constant conversations with different team members. Were you not sleeping because you were so busy or were you not yeah, sleeping? Busy. Okay. Um, uh, you weren't having a hard time sleeping. You were, you were tired enough. Yeah. It was more like, you know, wake up in the morning, talk to the team, yeah. recruit for the role, so on and so forth. Yeah. Talk to the team until late in the night and, yeah. then, and then, and then do the same thing again. Yeah. Was there so, like a cultural, I mean, I, it sounds like there was, but was there like a cultural reset there that you had to kind of consciously do? And maybe even some people that opted out willingly cause they were visa people or something. I don't know. Definitely some of the latter. There were some people that joined under one expectation and ended up yeah. opting out for, for right. one reason or another. And we welcome and understand that. We support that. We want people to be working in a place that they really want to work long term. And yeah. you know, as we said, hey, look, it's it's startup journey again. We're reaffirmed startup journey. We want people that want to be on that startup journey right. with us. And so like we're very kind to people if they if they chose to opt out. I think there's a constant cultural evolution of a company. I wouldn't say it was a cultural reset per se. But we did start to make very clear, like, hey, here are the principles of the company. Here's here's the direction that we're going. Here's the pace at which we, we expect to work. And I think you have to constantly be iterating and tweaking your culture. Mm-hmm. But this was definitely another one of those periods where we said, hey, look, you know, we just want to reaffirm this is what we are. This is what we said we were going to be. This is what we've been in the past. Yeah. This is what we are now. And, yeah. and, and kind of this is this is where we're going to go. There was definitely like a, we call it more of a revving of the engines as opposed to a reset per se. That's fair. How much time? I mean, one of the things... It, it sounds like you're spending a lot of time communicating to the organization. How much do you think about like communicating versus over communicating? I hear that a lot with a lot of leaders. Like I haven't communicated it until I'm tired of hearing it myself or something like that. Is that like, do you have some version of that? Yeah. I mean, what's, what's the job of a, of a leader? It's to, to set the strategy, to build the team, to make sure that the team understands the, tr- the strategy and then to put structures in place to ensure that the team understands the strategy and the strategy is good and, and all of these things work together. And so, yeah, I think this concept of overcommunication is, is is crucial. It's it's almost impossible to say a thing too many times internally to the point that you know I'll get bored of hearing it after hearing it twice, and I need to say it twelve times, and and and, and that's just a thing that that we need to do. I think it's it's almost impossible to overcommunicate clarity on the strategy. Tell me about the the things that you do for you. 
Like, is it rock climbing? Is it like, how do you take care of you? Talk to me about self-care, Zach. For me, the things that I really enjoy kind of outside of your work are, are, are probably threefold. First is learning. And that could be about work. That could be not about work. So, you know, finding a new thing to go learn. Second is spending time in nature. And for me, oftentimes the first two interact. So, you know, there was, there was a period of time where my wife got really into road cycling and I didn't know how to do it. And like that, that journey of learning how to do it was like a truly amazing thing. Did you fall on the clips at any point? I never fell. I bonked a number of times. Bonking is when your body runs out of glucose and you can no longer actually continue pedaling. And so that's like kind of a, it's, you kind of get tunnel vision. It's a really dangerous thing. You did that uh, a number of times? Yeah, you do that. You do that when you're first learning to to road cycle long distances because your body's not used to it. Then then wow. then you get over it. I have not been taking my road bike far enough, apparently. <laughs> I haven't almost know. died yet. <laughs> and then yeah, like surfing's another one for me where yeah. you know I was a terrible surfer five years ago and now I'm slightly better than terrible, but I love doing it. So putting those two two things together. What is it you one. love about it? Why? For me, it's just it's quiet. You you can't take a phone with you. You're on the water, kind of like staring at the horizon, seeing what's seeing what's gonna come. And it's also, you know, it, it's a really good workout. So it's, it's, it's got some weird startup parallel where you're paddling for 97% of the time and you're surfing That's a hilarious for 3% parallel. of the time. Yeah. yeah. It was just like, like work, 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 work. And then like the, the celebration, the excitement is like these, these, yeah. these very And everybody pockets. sees the 3%. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, maybe. yeah I can't remember. Some, some, some famous surfer says they could, shouldn't call it surfing. They should call it paddling. That's funny. And then. Spending time with, you know, friends and family and I do that as, as, as best I can, as much as I can. I think for me early on in Plaid, that wasn't a big priority and probably to my own detriment, you know, I was working a gajillion hours and not, not thinking about the rest of life. I'm trying to now be a little bit more balanced. Not great at it if I'm totally honest, but do my best. Yeah. I don't find the most interesting people in the world to be all that balanced. So it seems like you're probably having more fun than balance would lead you to. How do you learn things? Like what's your, are you audio visual? Like how do you Uh, take in information best? Uh, everything, most of it, the, the most efficient way to get information into your brain is audio, I find, because you can play audio when you're doing all sorts of different yeah. things. And so just from a pure information ingestion, I, I, I often do that. Talking to people is is great in terms of like getting facts. But for me, I need to like sit in a room and think about it. So, you know, I'll have a stack of white paper and just like draw up the things or like write, write my own notes or like think about what what was that thing that I heard and what does it mean to me now and how do I put that into practice? one way or another. And then my favorite, and the reason I actually like learning a lot about a lot of business things is that you have this like infinite environment in which to experiment. And so you, know, you learn a business thing, you can come back to your company, you can say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try this little thing in, in, in a little test. I think my leadership team both loves and hates that I do this because yeah. I'll come back from you know vacation and we'll, we'll have this new framework of, of thinking about things. And I actually think that this this kind of experimentation is really healthy as long as you don't go too extreme with it. You don't assume that everything you read is, is perfect. But having that level of experimentation where you can try out new things and, and, and new structures tends to work very well for us. We've, we've, we've changed a lot of our internal processes through that. It seems like that academic and like scientific background is like manifesting itself there a little bit with like a little bit of the, like you said experimentation, but I think you actually mean experimentation. You're like, well, this worked this time. Now let's try it two more times. And then like scientific method, the whole thing. And it seems like your brain just naturally works in the scientific method almost. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps that was drilled into me too early. Yeah, I don't think it was, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's a good thing. Are you listening to a lot of podcasts? Like, what are you listening to? Audiobooks, podcasts, what? All the above. Usually things that friends recommend or things that are related. I, I do a lot of like, what, what was this thing that I enjoyed learning from or, or I, thought I found valuable? What are the sources for this thing? What are the references they cite? Then I, I kind of like follow that journey quite a lot. I do listen to, to, to podcasts. I've, I've tried to 
be a little bit more sensitive to the things that I'm putting in my brain. Just mm-hmm. th- there came a point about a year ago where I said, you know, I'm never going to get through all of the things that I might want to get through. Like, yeah. l- let me prioritize uh, really well. So think a little bit more into books, audiobooks, conversations with people, a little bit less towards podcasts, except for this one, of course, the most amazing podcast in the world. Um, <laughs> You're so bullshit. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. I'm going to, Johnny, can we cut and print that, please? How much are you thinking and listening or reading about things that are not business related? More and more. I realized I was too singularly tracked uh, yeah. about a year ago, too. So I've started to pick up more fiction. Fiction but, specifically. Uh, okay. Yeah, exactly. Well, are there other, like, Mm. I guess my only one is comedy outside of business. It's kind of like all these different industries almost, but it all kind of levels back up to business. And then, yeah, I don't do the fiction thing though. I think I have like a hard time getting my head wrapped around a thing that didn't happen. It seems like, do you struggle with like the, you seem like a person that would like need something out of all the time you invest. Do you uh, feel like you get something out of that? No, I, I don't know. I think the science fiction, especially like, helps ah, new, damn it. Okay, fine. Science fiction is a fair, that's fair. Yeah. It's a fair exception. Okay. So I think really like the spot that I want to go to is really just what you're most excited about in the future, which is just like a wildly boring question, but you're an interesting enough individual that I will actually end on a wildly boring question because I feel like you probably have an interesting answer. No pressure. (laughs) So I'll talk about it a little bit in the business context and then I'll see if I can zoom out too. In the business context, you know, I think... Plaid has made this like amazing evolution from being a single product company, just doing connectivity to now having many products. And this brought us into a bunch of new spaces. So one fascinating space is risk and fraud, like the um, amount of data that's available to better do fraud analytics for consumers is huge. The quality of products out there is good. uh, I would say it's not it's not great. And and we can become great with, with with no question. But this is an area that I think has just like gigantic ability to evolve. Second is looking at credit analytics. So we've been building a bunch of tools to augment a credit profile for a consumer. This allows people that you know don't have a lot of income, perhaps, but have high assets to get a loan. Historically, you had to have you know high income, high assets, good FICO, like long history, all of that stuff. The reality is there are a lot of good people to make loans to that otherwise might not have access to it. You should give them better rates and things like that. And so we've been really excited about thinking about, you know, how do we reformat or, or augment credit scoring going forward? Another one is thinking about payments. And we're in this really interesting space where um, the competition in payments is higher than it's ever been. Like it, it always, it feels like, you know, a bunch of different factions coming together and saying like, we're, we're going to make change here. And so we're seeing evolution from like Durban, Durban 2.0, things like that. You're seeing evolution in terms of bank link payments. You're seeing, you know, RTP, FedNow starting to, to scale up. You're just looking at India saying, oh my gosh, like, can we implement that kind of UPI system in the US? Yeah. Wow, that'd be amazing. Right. Or PIX in Brazil. And yeah, we're in this really unique time for what's going to happen to that. And so I feel fortunate to, you know, Plat is sitting kind of in some part in all three of these spaces. So you get to look at credit scoring going to revolutionize. We get to look at risk and fraud analytics, like that's going to revolutionize over the next five to 10 years. We look at, at payments, like that's going to revolutionize. Payments is the one that I can probably least predict how, yeah. but I know there's going to be way more competition and that's going to be really fun. Yeah. And so for me, I'm just like, I'm giddy, like thinking about what's going to be the next phase of financial services. You know, right now, if you, if you listen to what people say on Twitter, you might be inclined to think, you know, is fintech dead? Is fintech funding dead? You know, are certain segments of fintech dead? You know, I was listening to a panel with some friends on it. It was literally that title. And they were all, of course, mad about the title. But <laughs> the reality is uh, fintech's in this interesting inflection point, in, in my view, where we're going from taking banking and making it digital 
which is interesting and mm-hmm. hugely valuable yeah. to now taking digital banking and thinking about how can technology actually make banking different, how can make it better, make it more dynamic. And so I think this this kind of like second phase of fintech is going to be super fun. And, and, and I'm really excited to, to think about that one. Okay. One final one, because you went there. I agree with you. The fintech isn't dead, but is fintech the right word? Is my question. No, and I actually I'm using this word because I started the podcast talking about the fintech yeah, in, yeah, yeah, in, yeah. in New York ecosystem. Yeah. The the words that I use internally are digital finance. Yeah. I think when when we say fintech, people assume that you're talking about startups. The reality is the big banks are potentially the biggest fintech companies, right? Yes. Because they are oftentimes leaning heavily into technology and we're seeing frankly some of the biggest banks build these amazing consumer experiences that, you know, rewind five or ten years, you would say no big bank could ever build that. It's amazing to see the evolution here. My take is this industry is is like digital financial services, and eventually you're even going to drop the word digital from that. Once there we that's becomes, that's my answer. That's yeah. I think that to me that is like when we've made it. Not right. that like that's where we're at right now, but that's when I feel like this thing that we like eat, sleep, breathe, like get out of the bed to hopefully you know make the world a little bit better. Like when we can like when somebody comes to me and says Plaid, the financial services company, I feel like that's when we made it. And I mean, you guys are getting on stage with City this year, and like. We don't have to go too deep into that. But like, to me, the idea of you getting on stage with one of the most senior people at Money 2020, I should just, we just assume that that's fucking huge for our industry. Like you being up there, like one of the pieces of the story that I wrote, we wrote this year for Money 2020 was FinTech growing up. And like, I was thinking of you guys as I was writing that piece of the story. And then when I was talking with the team and we kind of got things organized for you to talk with City, I was just like, this is like, we're almost there. I think we're almost to the point where like FinTech is financial services and the goodness is like spreading. Like the fact that you care about humanity, I actually think is manifesting itself in the cities of the world, which is, I feel like we made a difference kind of thing. Yeah, I sure hope so. And it is pretty amazing to see kind of the industry continue to grow up, to continue to be more and more impactful to consumers. I think at the end of the day, all of us are focused on, you know, what's the outcome that we create for the person that's walking down the street. You live in Kansas City. I grew up in a small town. When I go home, probably when, when, when you're at home, you can still see a lot of these areas where financial services hasn't solved the problems that they oh, have to solve. Yeah. You, 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 KC is the payday loan capital of the U.S. Exactly. Yeah. Payday loans all over the place. You see, you know, consumers that can't get access to products simply because of where they live or, yep. or, or, or their ability to get into a physical bank branch. And that that is a thing that despite the fact that you know we're in new york city recording this podcast it feels like you know the financial capital of the world everything seems digital for the average person in the u.s we've just gotten started and so we still have a lot more work to do but i'm excited for it come a long way we got a long way to go baby thank you for doing this act thanks for taking the time my friend thank you for having me appreciate you hey thanks for listening If you're still listening, you're probably reaching for your phone to pick your next podcast or switch to music or just call it a day because you can't believe how much valuable information you just took in. But before you pick that next thing, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends and all that jazz. Generally scream from the rafters about how much you love FinTech Family Hour. Thank you again to our sponsor, FS Vector. And until next time, stay healthy, keep your head high, your costs low, and I love you all.